Hello everybody out there. This is station manager Keith Thews with News Source 1 Michiana debuting a demonstration trial podcast of progressive talk and or if you want to call it liberal talk. Hey, you know, um, I've been following you guys up there from down here in Tennessee and I have to say that I'm kind of disappointed what's happened to uh, WTRC on the AM and 101.9 going back to talk. And so I've decided out of being kind and fair to uh, allow for those of you who are, as I call, Liz Cheney Republicans and those of you who are progressive liberal thinkers to have an outlet for shows that fit your style. You know, we've had this big influx of the MNC Nation and other conservative talk media on the radio up there in northern Indiana, and it's time to uh, bring you some voices from the opposite side. Now, I'm going to say this because our station is focused on community radio. And, but, with the influx of conservative talk radio, it's time to give you those other voices. Now, is New Source One Michiana going to align themselves with the left? The answer will be a flat no. And I will repeat that. We are not aligning ourselves with the left, but we are providing this demo to see what reaction there is, see what interest there is. And uh, if you like it, let us know. Post on Facebook. Silvio posts this demo for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your lefties radio program. It's time for Nicole Sandler's What's News from NicoleSandler.com and the Progressive Voices Network. A little after two years into his presidency, there are a few things that Joe Biden hasn't yet done, but he's now poised to issue his first veto. The Senate on Wednesday passed a resolution that would overturn a Biden administration rule allowing retirement fund managers to consider the impact of climate change and other environmental and social factors when choosing investments. Again, the rule allows but doesn't require those investments. Despite that, the legislation passed 50 to 46 with Democrats Joe Manchin and John Tester voting with the Republicans. Conservatives have criticized the rule as a, quote, woke policy, forcing a liberal agenda that will cost retirees money. Most Democrats say the Labor Department rule will help investors. The House passed the measure earlier this week, so it heads next to President Biden, setting the stage for what could be, should be, the first veto of his presidency. By the way, a two-thirds majority of Congress would be needed to override a veto. That's not happening. Win one for the people. Drug maker Eli Lilly on Wednesday announced it will cap the out-of-pocket cost of insulin at $35 a month. They're the first pharmaceutical company in the U.S. to announce a voluntary price cap. The Inflation Reduction Act 
limited monthly out-of-pocket insulin costs to $35 for Medicare Part D enrollees beginning this year. A bill to cap the price for all Americans couldn't get past the filibuster in the Senate. Putting this into perspective, there are 37.3 million people in the U.S. with diabetes. 7.4 million of them rely on insulin, which costs less than $10 a vial to produce, has skyrocketed in price in recent years. Eli Lilly's drug called Homolog increased 1,481% between 1999 and 2019. Senator Bernie Sanders taking a bit of a victory lap as he challenged the other insulin manufacturers to follow suit. As some of you may recall, in 2019, I took a busload of folks who were diabetics from Detroit, Michigan to an hour north into Windsor, Ontario in order to buy insulin. And what these diabetics found is they could buy the exact same insulin products in Canada for one-tenth to the price they were paying in the United States. And I will never forget tears welling up in the eyes of some of these people. As a result of the pressure that the American people are now putting on the pharmaceutical industry, telling them to stop the greed, stop ripping off the American people, stop forcing families to see loved ones die because they can't afford prescription drugs. As a result of all of that, what we saw today is Eli Lilly substantially lowered the price they're gonna be charging for insulin. And now we are demanding that the other two major insulin uh, manufacturers also lower their prices. But the good news now is that the American people are standing up, are fighting back, are saying they won't accept the greed. And as chairman of the Health Education Labor Committee, trust me, this is an issue we're gonna be working very, very hard on. So we got some good news today, and that is the price of insulin from Eli Lilly is going way down. That's a good start. We got a lot more to do. Keep in mind, though, U.S. patients will still pay 2.4 times the amount as patients in other countries after this price decrease. Just saying. Well, if it's Thursday, residents of East Palestine, Ohio, get the opportunity to finally address the operator of the train that derailed while carrying toxic chemicals in their community last month. The EPA has ordered Norfolk Southern to meet with residents and finally answer their questions about long-term health effects. The company already backed out of one town hall with local officials citing threats to its employees. Oh, my. In addition to mounting frustrations among residents, workers' unions are saying some crews involved in the cleanup have also reported symptoms. But the EPA and local government officials have repeatedly said that their tests show the air quality in the area is safe and the chemicals should dissipate. Right. Oh, by the way, Norfolk Southern was also ordered to fully clean up the site. I'm not holding my breath, but I guess if you're in East Palestine, you have to. So the parts of the country that have been spared from the recent severe storms that have slammed the West and Midwest and parts of the North, it's our turn. The South and Southern Plains are bracing for a severe thunderstorm outbreak today, Thursday, that could possibly bring baseball-sized hail and tornadoes with winds of at least 111 miles per hour. Strong safety warnings, strong safety warnings have been issued for the severe threat area, which encompasses 45 million people from Texas to Alabama. Stay safe out there. Well, Sirhan Sirhan's not going anywhere soon. A California panel on Wednesday denied parole to the man who assassinated then-presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy back in 1968. The 78-year-old Sirhan 
is a Christian Palestinian from Jordan. He acknowledges that he was angry at Kennedy for his support of Israel, but says he doesn't remember shooting him. He does say he was drinking that night when the New York senator claimed victory in California's Democratic primary. California Governor Gavin Newsom last year rejected a determination by a different parole board that said Sirhan should be eligible for release. Newsom said he still posed a threat and hadn't taken responsibility for the assassination. A federal administrative law judge on Wednesday ruled that Starbucks committed egregious and widespread labor law violations when it tried to stop union organizing campaigns at its stores. The judge ordered the company to reopen closed stores and provide back pay and damages to employees who started the nationwide effort to unionize Starbucks. The judge writing that the company showed, quote, a general disregard for the employee's fundamental rights, retaliating against those affiliated with Starbucks Workers United. This case covered complaints of unfair labor practices at 21 Buffalo, New York area stores. Since the union drive began, 268 of Starbucks' 9,000 company-owned U.S. stores have unionized. Starbucks called the ruling inappropriate, saying the workers were fired for violating company policies, not in retaliation for union affiliation. And finally, the Guardian newspaper is reporting today that some 200 human rights organizations have written a letter calling on the United Nations to intervene over the destruction of abortion rights in the U.S. Some of the signatories include Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Global Justice Center, and Pregnancy Justice. The authors detail how, since the overturning of the federal constitutional right to abortion in June of last year, some 22 million women and girls of reproductive age live in states where abortion access is now either banned or inaccessible. The letter states that abortion restrictions deny women's decisional and bodily autonomy in a way that rejects the agency, dignity, and equality of people who can become pregnant. And finally, President Joe Biden addressed House Democrats Wednesday night at their annual retreat. But quite a few House Democrats stayed in D.C. and skipped Biden's speech. Why? They went to the Gershwin Awards, Joni Mitchell concert at DAR Concert Hall. Can you blame them? Eh, they'll get a chance to hear Biden today when he speaks at the Senate Democratic Caucus lunch in the Capitol. And that's just a bit of what's news for now. I'm Nicole Sandler. If you appreciate these reports and the Nicole Sandler Show, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. My work is listener supported and I can't do it without your help. Find out more at NicoleSandler.com and please click on that donate button. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14 and I watched her struggle, but MDA helped her get the best treatments and care. And they also help kids like my buddy, Ethan. My name is Ethan and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related 
related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at mda.org today. Hey, Michael Steele podcast listeners, Michael Steele here with another quick take from the Michael Steele podcast. Check out what's going on right now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Michael Steele podcast. We've been having this wonderful conversation with my friend Jason Atkinson, who has who was instrumental in pulling off uh, and getting in motion one of the largest, the largest um, restoration uh, project in U.S. history along the Klamath River uh, running from Oregon to Northern California. Um, and, and so now, Jason, I want I want to flip the script and talk about um, your walk in faith uh, and how that has translated into this novel concept um, called Pastors Monday, um, in which you basically gather pastors. And just for folks to know, most priests, ministers, iman, religious leaders take Monday off. That's their that's their mm-hmm. weekend. Um, uh, I know growing up and even to this day, the the priest in my parish Monday, they're generally not at the rectory. They're you know, they take the downtime, the me time. Mm-hmm. You have come up with this concept um, going back to the pandemic, uh, the pandemic year 2020 of creating this outlet for pastors to, to go fly fishing. Uh, tell us about this and and what it's doing and how it's working because it is it is phenomenally popular. It is growing like wildfire um, among pastors, not just in Oregon where this began, but now seemingly across the country. Well, yeah, thank you, and I'm I'm still uh, a little bit in shock about your sources and your research there, <laughs> but. Yeah, Pastors Monday, it was a concept that really came out of um, kind of out of a a, a lot of pain. Um, But as you and I both know, um, when you're in politics, you know everybody. Right. But you have no friends. Yes. And and your phone never rings with good news. Your phone only rings with bad news and people wanting something from you. And um, if you think about the role of a pastor, it's the exact same thing. They know everybody. They have no friends. And who can they talk to? Uh, Who can they uh, relate to? Well, they can't really relate to anybody in their church and certainly not anybody in the leadership of their church because the people in their church are looking to them as, you know, spiritual perfection. (laughs) And people who, you know, work in their church are complaining about, should we wear masks to church? Should we have a new parking lot? What about the kids? The music's too loud or, or whatever. Right. So um, I had a real sensitivity to, to, to pastors. So behind my uh, side story behind my, uh, there's a handwritten note here uh, from the president of the United States, thanking me for a fly rod that I gave him. And um I gave the president this custom fly rod that I for a company I was helping to develop fly rods for, and he loved it. And every time he saw me, he wanted to talk about it. When we started Pastor Monday, people like 
people said, well, we've got this old thing in the garage that we've never used. And it was our grandfather's. Would you like it for, for the pastures? And people were very generous and, you know, cause we were a startup and I had no money to do all this, but I was so convicted steel. I was so convicted because I thought about it for just, you know, for a while. And I'm like, so the president of the United States who gets all the press, who gets the very best that the country has to offer, who has a bigger impact in every community, all right. the president or the pastor of 50 people. And I was so convicted by that because, um, you know, of course, you know, if you turn on the news, you hear about the mega pastor or you hear about a screw up or you hear something that kind of makes you cringe a little bit. But the tr fact of the matter is, is that pastors as a group um, are the most important overlooked leader in every community. There is no issue facing culture that they don't have to have an opinion on or make a decision about. Mm -hmm. um, and yet um, we know that the burnout rate, and there's a lot of statistics on this right now, 42% of people who are in ministry want to quit, especially after the pandemic. I had no idea how big the suicide rate was. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea the loan. Well, actually I did have an idea, but, you know, certainly learn more about the loneliness that these leaders face. And if there's an issue before a group of people, I don't care if it's AA or, or senior citizens or kids that need to go to camp, certainly the spiritual needs of a community, <clears throat> it all falls on this one person who is solely unprepared for all of these issues. Right, right. I mean, you and I went to school for this stuff. You know, right. you and I have got, we interned, we, we've been around politics. We know it inside and out. But a pastor, you know, maybe they went to, you know, seminary. Maybe that doesn't mean they know understand all this other stuff. Right. This pressure. So we started this thing um, to just as an ex actually, there's a, 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 a I've been um, involved in fly fishing more than I'd ever admit my whole life, and uh, have developed somewhat of a reputation, which is a little awkward and, and and yet flattering. And there was this person who wanted to learn how to do this kind of cast that I do, which is a two-handed fly rod. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to learn how to do this. And he had Monday and I, he said, how about Monday? And I really didn't want to be around. I didn't, I was kind of trying to get away. When I go to the river, I don't want to be around people. Uh, <laughs> he was persistent. And um uh, and we had to go on Monday because he was a pastor of a, of a church. And uh, so it turned into this joke be that I have to fish the pastor on Monday. Well, I really ended up enjoying this person's company a lot. And uh, we went the next Monday and the next Monday and the next Monday. And eventually um, I, I was challenged by, well, what happens if I add another pastor? And and then uh, we formalized it. We set up a 501c3 and we did all that. Last year, over five, over 300 pastors came between Oregon and North Texas. Wow. Uh, in two months, we opened North Carolina. And what it is, is we serve the pastor as if they're the president of the United States. So back to what we're talking about in the first segment, there's no sarcasm. No sarcasm. 
Right. We treat the pasture with absolute respect. Um, there is no program. We're not, we're not forcing anybody into a conversation where they right. have to be authentic and transparent. Maybe they don't want to talk. Fine with us. Maybe they do. It's up to them. It's their day. We're just there to serve. So we, we curate the finest fly fishing experience you can have, but we don't orchestrate. We leave that part up to the almighty to orchestrate who needs to be there. We had uh, forest fires come through this one pastor, let's just say of a blue collar church, 12 families in his church lost everything Friday night. The next uh, Monday, he's seated next to a pastor of a white collar church, different denomination, 20 years his junior, totally different, same league, different teams. By the time they get off together on Pastor Monday, families have houses again. Mm-hmm. That happens every every Monday. We had a pastor whose who's, who's wife passed away from cancer. He found a support group in these other pastors because they right. speak the same language. We had a pastor whose son got mixed up in drugs. Well, who does he talk to? Right. Well, he happened to be seated next to somebody who's, you know, 10 years further down the road on that issue and now is is, is a friend. So it, it, it just keeps happening. Uh, why fly fishing? Well, it's simple. Um, you know, God never called golfers. Let me write that 90. down because I could not agree more with that sentiment. <laughs> so, so there's... Fly fishing is uh, it's beautiful, it's aspirational, uh, but it's cost prohibitive. It's expensive, right. and so we take that away. Uh, we 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 give away when you go with when a pastor comes with us. They're in the finest waders, they're with the finest rods, they're with the very best guides. The very the very best highest level of guiding is what we provide. Even though ninety five percent of those who come with us have never done it before. They don't know the standard that we're we're providing, but we do. Right. And it's up to us to do all things, you know, the best of our ability. So so we uh we serve and uh you know as as a former as a former seminarian, I, I really do appreciate uh that that outlet being created for these men and women who who give their their service um in such a unique and personal way because a lot of people don't don't really consider what the priest or the pastor the imam or the rabbi have to go through uh whether they're celibate or married um it doesn't it doesn't matter the 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 tensions the pressures are the same and so who serves them who is allowing for them to be frail and to be human and to be uh, vulnerable um, in a way that is healing so that they can then go out and, and, and do that for others. And that's when you first told me about this, uh, I immediately got it. As you may recall, I was, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I was like all about it. And um, because it, it is, one of those areas of our lives that we take a lot of it for granted or we don't know anything about it at all. And and those men and women in that position um, 
really don't have that outlet. And and as you as you like to joke, you know, you want to take these fishes of men and teach them to be fishers of fish. <laughs> and, and there's and there's something really basic and honest about that. You know, it, it's uh, this growth that you're now beginning to see. What does that tell you about where we are culturally and and so forth, and and how these pastors are sort of dealing with and evolving um, in this this new space where, like you, as you set this up, you know, they're sitting there having one parishioner say to them, you know, why are we having to wear masks? And another parishioner says, I'm not coming back to church until you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I what, think, what, I think, how, how uh, do they walk that line? Culturally, I think we're, the, we're at this, this really interesting inflection point in culture where where a lot of uh, a lot of American churches are reflecting culture rather than leading culture, and our culture today is very divided, you know. And there's there's this constant thing that we do, especially Republicans in particular, where you're not enough of something, you're not conservative enough, you're not enough of whatever. And I think I think that same pressure is translated into uh, these leaders also. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're even on Sunday, I think it was Martin Luther King. I should know that it's Martin Luther King who said, you know, the most segregated time in America is, yeah. you know, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And we, we still have that. So I think um, I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure. I think there's a tremendous amount of burnout. I, I am shocked uh, with the suicide rate. I am shocked with with the loneliness of, of leadership that uh, that these people uh, feel. But the demand has outstripped the supply. So there's a lot of things out there where, you know, uh, let's take care of the pastor and they can go somewhere for a week. Well, what happens the other 51 weeks? <laughs> so our model, um, pastors don't have time to take off for a week and they don't have money. If they did have time, they wouldn't have, you know, $3,000, right. $4,000. So what we do is we go every Monday. So it's very easy. It's supposed to be local. So there's not airplanes involved. That's why the chapters are getting set up around the country. They might drive an hour or two, but, um, and we limit it. We limit it in, in, in uh, how many can go. So it's not a conference. You know, it's interesting, uh, Steele, you and I used to go to these things and we we would be the speaker, right? Right. So you and I were always on stage. We were always the speaker. But what happens if you're not the speaker? You go to a conference and you're not. Then then the first thing you do is you start saying either, I want to be the speaker. I want to be on stage. I want to be famous. Or what's wrong with me that I'm not on the stage and I'm not famous? Right. So you take these pastors and you put them in a conference and they actually leave worse than they, they feel worse after than than right. <laughs> before they went. And so we treat everyone, everyone who comes with us as if they are the president of the United States. We treat them the utmost respect and honor. And, and then you're doing something ridiculous. You're, you're, you're throwing wads of chicken feathers known as flies uh -huh. at fish. It could not be more simple, but it's beautiful. There's no noise. Your cell phone is off and you're, you're actually being 
treated with respect. And, and the thing is, is that the demand keeps growing because pastors don't have that. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Heck, give us two five-star reviews. I love it. Or catch us on Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, or wherever you get that podcast thing on. You know how that goes. Peace out. Retaliation with Julie Roginski is a weekly podcast focused on the stories of women who have spoken truth to power and have persevered despite the costs. It shares the experiences of courageous people who have sometimes been celebrated, but too often castigated for standing up for themselves and for others. Each week, I examine the structures, systems, and culprits responsible for perpetuating and promoting workplace toxicity. You'll hear stories from female celebrities, music label executives, politicians, police officers, and many others as we examine the cultural reevaluations, policy changes, and legal steps that can finally bring an end to the ongoing attack on women in this country and around the world. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too by asking your healthcare provider if an oral treatment is right for you. Oral treatments can be taken at home and must be taken within five days from when symptoms first appear. If you have symptoms of COVID-19, even if they're mild, don't wait. Get tested quickly. If you test positive and are at high risk for severe disease, act fast. Ask if an oral treatment is right for you. COVID-19 moves fast, and now you can too. I'm William Shatner. I've been around a long time, but I'm truly humbled when I see the real battles our brave, paralyzed veterans have faced defending our freedom. And when they come home. I had just come home from serving over in Germany. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. I broke my neck. It left me paralyzed for the rest of my life. I was on a routine patrol and uh, we were in the desert of Kuwait, and the vehicle flipped and landed on top of me, which uh, left me paralyzed from the waist down. Okay, folks, this, this, this is heroism. That's why I'm proud to support Paralyzed Veterans of America, because they've kept their promise to never leave a fallen soldier behind. A roof over the heads, accessible homes, cars, jobs, benefits. PVA has brought me back to life. Show them their sacrifice hasn't been in vain. Go to pva.org to learn how you can make a difference. Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Farron Cousins. Coming up on today's show, the culture wars have taken center stage within the Republican Party. But is it possible for some of these Republicans who have seen huge statewide success with culture war issues, can they win on the national stage with it? That is the question. And right now, doesn't look like that could be possible. I'll bring you all the details. We also have the United States Supreme Court thinking about gutting Section 230, which protects social media companies and pretty much all online publishers from being held legally liable for the content posted on their platforms. On the surface, it may seem like that's a great idea, not having them enjoy blanket immunity, but at the same time, there's a lot of pitfalls that could come for independent media if Section 230 is revealed, I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. You got George Santos out there claiming that he can definitely win his credibility back, but it's not the credibility problem that he needs to be worried about. It's, it's those investigations 
that probably uh, are a little more important than his credibility. Marjorie Taylor Greene is trashing Matt Gates. More classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago. And of course, the story behind that is just as ridiculous as you would expect. I got all that and more coming up on today's show. And don't forget, you can get the full show every week. Go sign up and become a member at rofpodcast.com. And for Ring of Fire every single day of the week, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the ring of fire. I want to start today by talking about culture wars. There was a wonderful article in New York Magazine titled The GOP's Addiction to Culture War may cost it in 2024. And just to kind of break this article down into, you know, a nutshell here, they're talking about the fact that obviously for decades, Republicans have been pushing culture war issues. That's nothing new. What is new is the depth and the breadth of these culture war issues that we are now seeing being pushed state by state where Republicans have control of the legislature and the governor's mansion. We have seen legislation pop up in just the last week. States like Idaho trying to ban mRNA vaccines, which of course would include the COVID vaccine as well as other vaccines for certain types of cancer and hepatitis and things like that. They want to ban it because they don't understand what mRNA is, but they just know that that's a buzzword for their base. Obviously, the attacks on CRT, the attacks on the transgender community, the attacks on women's reproductive freedom, all of that is culture war issues. So, again, it's nothing new for Republicans to be pushing this. What what is new is, again, the scope that we are seeing and, of course, the success that we are seeing with these culture war issues. So for many, many years, Republicans would push culture war issues as their talking points. And typically, and this isn't mentioned in the article, this is, you know, my analysis of it, which, you know, I, I kind of feel like it's a little more in depth than what New York Magazine had to say here. Because look at it this way, for years and years, Republicans pushed culture war issues, but they never actually made any headway. You know, oh, we're going to pass a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. We heard that throughout the uh, Bush administration. That was their talking point. We we're going to ban gay marriage in the constitution. They never did it. I don't even think they ever had an actual proposal to do that, but it was a hot button issue at the time. And by God, they pushed it. You know, the anti-abortion groups pushing, we're going to outlaw abortion. We don't care about Roe. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it throughout the eighties, the nineties, the aughts, and of course the 2010s. But during all that time, they never did it. Even when they had majorities in the the House and the Senate, and they held the presidency and they held the Supreme Court, they still never did it because they didn't want to do it. You see, it was all a talking point to drive people to the polls. And once you do it, you can't run on that anymore because it's done. You won. And so you have to move on to something else, which of course is part of the reason now, now that we do have abortion bans going into place, that's why you see these Republican lawmakers going after critical race theory, something they can't even define. Ron DeSantis with his nonstop, you know, woke, 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 woke. 
his lawyers couldn't even define what that meant in court when they were asked. But at the same time, you have other culture war issues. Reagan famously attacked the uh, lazy welfare queens in his push to become president, saying that the reason you, hardworking American, you're getting screwed at your job, not because of your greedy employer, not because capitalism's keeping you down, but you're, you're getting screwed because you got lazy black people that are living off of welfare doing better than you. Go blame them. And this is where the difference comes in. With that talking point, with that culture war issue, because it was completely fabricated, it wasn't real, but people were moved by it. But it was a ruse to push Reagan's trickle-down economics. Right? There was a, legislat a legislative ulterior motive behind that talking point. And that's something that a lot of people seem to miss. A lot of these culture war issues, including in the early days, well, hell, even up to today, the, the push to ban abortion, the obvious legislative ulterior motive is to inject Christianity into law which is what the religious right has always wanted. That's why they were formed. Go ask Frank Schaefer, read his books. They're phenomenal. We've got interviews with Frank Schaefer in the archives on our YouTube channel at Ring of Fire. He explains it very clearly. That was the goal. But with these new culture war issues, and this is why, you know, circling back to that New York Magazine piece, why Republicans may not win on it, there's no legislative ulterior motive. They actually have nothing to gain from passing these bans on certain books or banning critical race theory or banning transgender athletes from participating in sports. There's no tangible benefit to the Republican party anymore. You know, it's not like, Oh, the lazy welfare queen. So we got to help you out. So I've devised a new economic plan called trickle down. Well, that benefited the corporations, which is why Republicans did it. They just had to come up with that talking point to sell it. But when you look at the critical race theory bans, when you look at the book bans, when you look at the uh, uh, transgender uh, uh, attacks, none of it has any real benefit to the Republican Party other than getting the base energized. And that'll work when you're talking to your base. But when you step outside of your comfort, comfort zone, when you have to go out there and talk to people outside your deep red state, the people in those purple states, what are you going to sell to them? Reagan was able to sell trickle down with his racist attacks and they bought it. But how are you going to spend your attacks on the transgender community, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott? and Glenn Youngkin and everybody else. How are you going to do that? To spin it as we're doing this because there's a problem facing middle America and we're going to push this legislation to solve it. There is no problem attached to these culture war issues. See, that's the point I'm getting at. And I think in a roundabout way, the New York magazine piece also comes to that same conclusion, which is why we are going to see these same Republicans, even the ones that have had huge success in their deep red states, struggle when they step outside their own borders. 
because banning critical race theory, banning transgender athletes, banning drag shows, yeah, that plays well with the MAGA base here in Florida. It plays well with the folks in Texas and Tennessee and Alabama. But when you go up to Wisconsin or you go to Minnesota or you go to Ohio and Pennsylvania, those swing states, Michigan, the ones you got to have to win a presidential election, they don't care. You're not going to be able to energize the middle with attacks on critical race theory. You're not going to be able to energize the average working class voter by telling them that, hey, yeah, we know your pay sucks. We know you're getting abused by the company you work for, but you really need to care about a, a transgender woman competing in swimming. They're going to look at you and say, what? What? No, no, I don't. Actually, that, that doesn't affect me at all. I can't pay my bills and you want me to be worried about this stupid ass issue. That's what's going to happen to these people. Now, the degree to which this will happen to them, we'll see when it plays out, right? Okay, we do not know for sure, but I can promise you when some of these rising stars in the Republican Party, and yes, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm focusing in on Ron DeSantis because he right now is the number two in Republican polling for, for the 2024 nomination behind Trump, it's not going to work. That man has done nothing for us here in the state of Florida. He has not pushed a single legislative agenda that actually benefits anyone other than himself or corporations. Nothing. And I'm not exaggerating when I say nothing. He is a culture war, nonsense, bully, wannabe fascist. And he will get demolished on the national stage. It doesn't matter how popular he is here in Florida. It doesn't matter that he's getting all of this fawning praise from everyone on the right. He ain't going to cut it because he has nothing of substance to talk about because he's focused solely on the culture wars without attaching any legislative agenda to it. Because at that point, it's almost impossible to do. They want to be the next Reagan. But let's be honest, they're simply not as smart and they don't have, you know, as evil of advisors as Reagan had. So they can try to live up to that uh, uh, monument they've created in their minds to Reagan, but none of them are going to be able to pull it off. That is the one hope, the one belief that I have heading into the 2024 election. These idiot culture warrior governors are going to get their butts handed to them. But there's a chance we may not even be talking about that at the time because the Supreme Court last week heard oral arguments in a case, Gonzalez versus Google. And this is a very tragic lawsuit because what happened here is you had the family of uh, Noemi Gonzalez. She was killed in a 2015 terror attack in France. She was a U.S. citizen in France killed in a terrorist attack. This lawsuit alleges that the Google, uh, who owns YouTube, the YouTube algorithm, uh, basically promoted these videos from terrorists, you know, recruiting videos, you know, anti-American videos, you know, anti-France videos. So they're suing Google for allowing this to happen. And they're trying to basically get Section 230 repealed. And for anybody not familiar, Section 230 is the part of the Communications Decency Act, 
which um, basically says that a content, not a content provider, a, a web platform is not responsible. They're not legally liable for the content posted by users on their platform. So if you make a website and you start spouting all of this, you know, uh, terrorist speak, and it's hosted by GoDaddy, GoDaddy can't be liable for that. If you post a video on YouTube promoting terrorism and, and laying out plans to make a bomb, YouTube, Google cannot be held responsible for that under section 230. Same thing would go for Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and all of them. Now this individual was killed according to this lawsuit because of the, the algorithm that promoted these horrible things on YouTube. And this issue has me kind of torn because yes, these platforms, when you have sinister people doing horrible things that get people killed, the platform needs to be held responsible for allowing this to happen. Section 230 prevents them from being held liable. So that needs to be amended. But if we were to repeal section 230, 100% independent media would be killed immediately on the left and right. Okay. Not just the liberals, conservative, independent media, honestly, would probably be killed much faster. Here's why you repeal section 230 and suddenly those platforms become responsible for every word said on their platforms. So if a conservative does a YouTube video where they slander somebody on the left and then they get sued for slander, it wouldn't just be that right wing outfit that got sued. Google actually alphabet who owns Google, who owns YouTube, they would also be sued for slander for hosting it. It's like when the New York times gets sued for defamation, it's not just the writer of the article. It's the organization itself that publishes it. We've been sued or threatened to be sued basically for defamation here at ring of fire. Um, none of them have ever, you know, resulted in anything. Nobody's ever been paid. Uh, but they wouldn't just be threatening us with a lawsuit. They would also threaten YouTube and YouTube upon seeing this wouldn't want to go through that. So they would say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to disable this user's account. Ring of fire can no longer post videos. CPAC can no longer post videos. Daily caller, daily wire. Majority Report, David Pakman. They would come after each and every one of us because we would all become liabilities. Not that we're out there saying untrue things all the time or ever, really. I mean, at least those of us on the left, but we get threatened with lawsuits by the right because they just simply don't like what we say. Now, for us here at Ring of Fire, that's kind of stupid. Uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but, uh, you know, the main proprietor of ring of fire happens to be one of the preeminent trial lawyers in the country. So everybody always immediately backs down, not realizing that, but even just the threat of it to someone like YouTube, they would say, no, we're not going to do this. Let's get rid of them. Let's kill the channel. So independent media would take a hit if section 230 was repealed. And by hit, I mean, it would be destroyed. So I am not in favor of repealing section 230. So the question is, how do we reconcile the two things? Platforms have to have some type of immunity over the content posted on the platform. 
But at the same time, they also have a responsibility to weed out the harmful content that could get people killed. And if they don't, they should be held liable. So to borrow the phrase from Obama, rather than taking a hatchet to Section 230 and just cutting it off completely, it needs to be rewritten. It needs to be reworked. We have to protect independent media, but we also have to protect people who could be killed because of what they see on these websites. So that's what needs to happen. And that's what worries me about the Supreme Court case is one, the justices didn't even know what was being argued in front of them. They kept asking questions saying, we don't understand what you're saying, right? Like th that, that's terrifying. We don't understand you came from both the liberal and the conservative justices. So they're going to rule on something that they don't understand. And I guarantee you, they're going to rule in favor of the corporations most likely. So yay, independent media lives, but people could still die because of the content posted on those platforms. And that's not okay. What they need to do is they need to remand the decision back down to the lower court. The lower court needs to look at it and strike down certain parts of the laws. They could implement exemptions to the law and then Congress could re rewrite it, excuse me, in a way that protects independent media, but also protects the citizenry from the extremists who will use these platforms to promote their hateful ideologies. That's what needs to happen. Honest to God, it's a very simple solution. This shouldn't even be going in front of the Supreme Court because Congress should already be doing this, but they're not because big tech pays them a lot of money, both on the left and right. Most of it, by the way, going to Republicans to not do anything about it. They want to keep their immunity so that they don't have to fight lawsuits like Gonzalez versus Google. So it all comes back to get the damn money out of politics. Otherwise, people are going to keep getting hurt. And that brings me to this next story here. This is a weird one. So last week, of course, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, decided to hand over more than 40,000 hours worth of footage from January 6th exclusively to Fox News host Tucker Carlson. And Carlson has already been working on this, you know, documentary now. It's, uh, I think parts of it are already out and the rest of it's going to be coming out later where he basically uses all of this footage that he now has to craft a new narrative about January 6th claiming, hey, nothing was wrong. These people were simply walking around. They were peaceful. They were quiet because the 40,000 hours comes from, you know, God knows how many security cameras. And I'm sure there's plenty of footage of people just walking like normal people, you know, cutting out all the footage from the rioters, the people beating the cops, all of that. Yeah. He'll just cut all that out. I'm sure he will. And we'll just see peaceful, normal people walking around and then leaving. And that's the narrative that uh, Tucker Carlson will be crafting. And on top of that, there's also the danger of Tucker Carlson showing essentially the angles from which these security cameras are able to view the uh, uh, Capitol building. And that's what lawmakers have expressed a lot of, you know, concern about like, hey, now they're going to know where the cameras are. Are you helping them plot the next insurrection? But there, and as weird as it is to say, might be a savior. There might be one man who's able to stand up and actually get that footage released to everybody 
so that Tucker Carlson can't craft his own narrative. And believe it or not, as weird as it is to say, that man might be my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell, last week, after Kevin McCarthy gave Tucker Carlson all of that footage, he was pissed. So Mike Lindell goes on Steve Bannon's podcast and he threatens to sue Kevin McCarthy if he doesn't release that footage to everybody in the media. And is again, super weird to say because I, I, I loathe Mike Lindell, but he's right. Like that's not fair. Kevin McCarthy had pledged that he was going to release it to the public. He said public. And instead he gives it to one guy over at Fox news who has basically denied a lot of the events that happened on January 6th. And Mike Lindell said, uh, quote, why does just Fox get this so they can cover it up even more? It's disgusting. He said he plans to, quote, go after McCarthy under the First Amendment, claiming his Lindell TV was, quote, injured by not having access to the tapes. It's like a cover up, he said. In a phone interview with the Daily Beast last Thursday, Lindell said that his media firm had sent an official request to McCarthy in Congress to publicly release the footage. He said, let's give them a chance first to do the right thing and give it to all outlets. And if they don't, he's filing a lawsuit. Again, I, I support the lawsuit. I, I actually, <laughs> I disagree because uh, Lindell, I believe, is somebody who thinks that the events of January 6th have been overblown and that, oh, no, it's nothing. And I think he thinks Tucker Carlson's going to make it look worse than it was. Um, so I disagree with him on that because that's very stupid. But he's not wrong. He's wrong about Lindell TV suffering a loss. Okay, so he's not going to win that lawsuit on those merits. But he is right that it's not fair. If you want to release this stuff to the public, release it to everybody. But there's a very clear reason why McCarthy chose only Tucker Carlson, and it is so that Carlson can create a counter narrative to what actually took place. So... That's what's going on with that. And for the second time ever, I will say that I fully support Mike Lindell's endeavor. The first time, by the way, was when he was running for RNC chair. I, I wholeheartedly supported him for that because he's so dumb. I would have loved to have seen him take over the Republican Party. Um, so, of course, I had my own horrible motives for supporting that bid just because I wanted to see Republicans fail even harder. But this one actually... He's doing the right thing. He's doing it for the wrong reasons, but it is the right thing to do. I hope he files suit. I hope he comes up with a better legal argument and I hope he pays good lawyers because at the end of the day, this is something that does have potential if he does it right. Even though he's doing it for the wrong reasons, he might be able to make real positive change in this country if he's successful. And also... I got to circle back, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene still out there talking about her national divorce idea. And last week, at the end of last week, <laughs> she went on Twitter and she absolutely obliterated her former BFF, Matt Gates, because Matt Gates had done an interview on, uh, on Fox News with Laura Ingram, who also does not support Marjorie Taylor Greene's stupid national divorce. And Matt Gates said, quote, I'm not for a national divorce, but I do think the federal government should have to spend the night on the couch for a while. 
I believe the best pushback is a national renewal, not a national divorce, something that Marjorie Taylor Greene is certainly helping to inspire. So it wasn't even bad criticism, right? He wasn't saying she's an idiot. Nobody should listen to her. He was just like, yeah, I mean, she's pushing for this, but I think instead maybe this. Well, you can't ever disagree with any part of anything that Marjorie Taylor Greene says. So she took that clip that Gates had tweeted out. She quote tweets it and she adds this. There is a failure for many to realize Americans are giving up because they are sick of the talking heads that just complain about all the problems and politicians that never fix anything while the right just keeps taking the beatings and abuse from the left. Reducing the power and size of the federal government and giving more to the states in order to protect ourselves and our kids from the abusive left is actually the bold action that needs to be taken in order for the left to be able to realize how insane and abusive they have become. Just like the prodigal son, once the left gets to truly live in their own filth they have created without us, then they will be able to realize the error of their ways. Until then, most of us don't want to be forced to accept and live in their filthy, abusive ways with them anymore. So she's mad at Matt Gates, but she seems to be directing most of her anger towards the left in a very stupid way. Because here's the thing. Um, economists and analysts actually looked at her plan. They took the numbers state by state because she wants to basically break us up into red states and blue states. You know, each state becomes its own uh, real territory. We're still governed by a federal government. Um, so really it's not any different than, than what it is now, but here's what happens. And this is again, according to economists, the analysts, the, the smart people who look at the numbers, they determined that these red states, if left to their own devices would crumble within a couple years, their economies would not be able to survive because most of the production here in the United States takes place where in the blue states. Most of the financial transactions, most of the revenue generated in this country, most of the money itself is situated where? In the blue states. Blue states as a whole contribute far more to the federal government than red states do. Red states are dependent upon the federal government for basically supporting their horrible policies because it's bankrupting their constituents. So you take away that federal government asset, suddenly blue states are flush with cash, more money than they know what to do with. And instead of having to rely on the red states for the other half of the manufacturing process, because raw materials, again, this is according to the economist, typically produced in blue states, the manufacturing is done in red states. However, under Marjorie Taylor Greene's plan, these red states would now have to compete with not only one another to get the manufacturing, but also with overseas labor markets. And with no National Department of Labor to enforce strict labor standards, that would mean a reduction in both pay and safety requirements for workers in red states in order to compete with labor from Mexico, China, wherever it is that blue states would consider sending it to. So suddenly the economic activity in red states continues to plummet and so on and so forth. I could go on and continue to explain the plan, but I think you get the point. Red states would crumble and die under Marjorie Taylor Greene's plan. And she's too stupid to realize that she is instead accusing all of the folks in blue states. You're living in filth. You're living in sin. You're terrible people. They're terrible people, Marjorie. 
that are propping your state up. Georgia wouldn't do so well if you didn't have the federal government sitting there holding your damn hand and protecting the people in the state because God knows Brian Kemp hasn't. God knows you haven't. Same thing down here in Florida. Same thing over in Texas. Alabama has poverty so bad that the United Nation two, three years ago put out a report saying there's little difference in the poverty in a third world country versus Alabama. They say it's the worst they've ever seen. It is the worst in the industrialized world. So you're going to tell me that Alabama's just going to be hunky-dory under your plan? Mississippi, not far behind them. Same thing with Louisiana. No, they're screwed. And you're condemning your own constituents, your own Republican voters to a life of misery and pain all because you want to push this idiotic idea that apparently nobody on the left or right even supports. That's all the time we have for the free portion of this week's show. We've got a great member show coming up in just a moment. And if you want to get in on that, make sure you go sign up and become a member at rofpodcast.com. Not only do you get the full show, you also get access to the entirety of the Ring of Fire archives, all of the past full shows, and it's a great way to help keep supporting us here at Ring of Fire. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Hello again, good friends. Good to see you and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, where we try to help keep you up to date on all the big issues on the table in our nation's capital. And one of the biggest ones still, now one year later, is Russia's war against Ukraine. In a dramatic move, President Biden traveled to inside Ukraine last week, meeting President Zelensky in Kyiv in a show of solidarity and reaffirming America's commitment to Ukraine. But back here at home, things are somewhat uncertain, with several leading Republicans either actually siding with Putin or arguing that we shouldn't give any more money or weapons to Ukraine. So where do we stand on Ukraine? What's the story on the ground there today? And how long does it look like this war could drag on? Well, as you know from the beginning, we have followed the war in Ukraine with our own foreign policy expert, national security analyst, and former head of the Plowshares Fund, Joe Cirincioni. Today, having just marked the first anniversary of the war, we welcome Joe Cirincioni back for an update. 
Joe Cirincione, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much, Bill. It's always great to be here. So we saw last week uh, President Biden a very dramatic visit to Kiev, uh, kept in top secrecy until he arrived there and said hello to President uh, Zelensky. How important was that visit, Joe? Oh, it was a major uh, step for Biden, for Ukraine, for U.S. support for for Ukraine. You know, German um, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has a phrase that he coined a year ago called Zeitenwende, means turning point. And he Mm -hmm. meant about a turning point in Germany's defense policies because of Putin's invasion. I think we may look back at this trip by Biden to Kiev as a Zeitenwende, a turning point where Biden is just all in. He is fully committed in, in, in putting his personal prestige on the line, making the most dramatic visit to a war zone I think any president has, has done since Abraham Lincoln visited mm-hmm. a few miles from me out at Fort Stevens during the Civil War. I mean, that's that's how far you have to go back to see something like this. And I think it's, it's both a demonstration of his, his personal commitment, the U.S. commitment, and his commitment to a Ukrainian victory to Ukraine winning this war, not just fighting to a stalemate. Uh, and clearly, in his remarks that day, he made, uh, you know, he he stated um, that he stands with Ukraine and Ukraine still stands one year later. Here's the president. One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev, perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kiev stands. And Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. In fact, Joe, have we seen such um, unanimity or togetherness in terms of Western Europe since World War II? Uh, no, I don't think we have. You know, you can think of the many conflicts we've been engaged in, whether it's Afghanistan, which had a, a brief moment of such unity when the whole world was with us in responding to the terrorist attacks of, of 9-11. But, but then that quickly faded as the U.S. Um, operation turned into an occupation. Mm-hmm. The invasion of Iraq a year later was incredibly divisive. Vietnam, uh, even Korea, going back even further, divisive conflicts. You know, NATO is is stronger than ever, larger than ever, more unified than ever. And you also saw that at the Munich Security Conference a week ago, where you were support for Ukraine and the solidarity among the Western leaders was unlike anything we've seen in a very, very long time. So, in fact, um, Putin achieved just the opposite of what he intended to achieve, didn't he? Absolutely. He wanted to divide NATO. He he united it. He wanted to weaken Western resolve. He, he strengthened it. He wanted to split the U.S. off from Europe. He's brought them closer than ever. And of course, he's in, inspired a, a Ukrainian nationalism that was there, but not mm-hmm. manifest in the way it is now. And Putin is learning this essential lesson of the 20th and now 21st century, never underestimate the power of nationalism. That's what you're seeing Ukraine. Uh, it, it, well, that's what's fueling the Ukrainian resistance. And that is why this, this uh, country that mo- most people had written off as, yeah. as, you know, is now fighting to a, a standstill, and I would say winning this war against a, a superior, better resourced uh, opponent. 
so let me ask you about that. This, uh, February 24th, the first anniversary. Um, I saw this week uh, the, the stats that uh, Russia today controls about 18 mm percent -hmm. of Ukraine territory. A year ago, before the war, they controlled 7 percent on the eastern side. Last March, right after things started, they, have, they got up to 27 percent. What is your read of where we are today, where Ukraine is today, one year later? Mm -hmm. I think there are three views of the conflict and the dominant one, the one that's in the blob, the U.S. foreign policy establishment, is that we're heading for a stalemate or a frozen conflict and that neither side is likely to pre prevail. There is a minority view that Russia will prevail. This is actually Putin's view that they can just overwhelm the Russian resistance, outla I mean, the Ukrainian resistance, mm -hmm. outlast uh, the West and, and succeeding splitting the West in part by fears of, say, nuclear war if the war goes on for too long. And then there's a third minority view, and I'm a member of that minority view, which is that Ukraine is going to win this war. And I don't mean just hold off the Russian onslaught, which is the current phase of the war we're in now. This is what's happening now. Russia is re in a new offensive. It is, it is human wave attacks, artillery barrages, uh, whatever it can muster. It's throwing at Ukraine right now. Ukraine is holding. And I believe in the spring, when the munitions that the West has promised now come to Ukraine, you're going to see that Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think it's quite possible that the Russian force could break. They are mm. sustaining incredible casualties. Just yesterday, which was a quiet day in the war, uh, U Ukraine reports 660 Russians killed. And over mm. the last few weeks, we've seen 800, 900, 1,000 a day killed. It reminds you of those hills the U.S. used to take in Vietnam at tremendous yeah. losses, only to give them up. That's what's happening to Russia now. I, I think they're getting weaker and Ukraine is getting stronger. That's why I believe people like uh, retired General Mark Hurtland or retired General Ben Hodges, I agree with them that Ukraine has showed the superior leadership, the morale, the fighting spirit, the strategy. They can outlast Russia. They can win this war. So when President Zelensky said a couple of days ago that he sees that uh, Ukraine will win this war within the next year, do you think he you think he's on target? I, I do. I do. And I'd be looking at this summer as being the decisive phase. And I'd be looking for more sort of skillful and imaginative Ukrainian maneuvers like one they conducted just yesterday. They blew up a Russian plane in Belarus. This mm. is one of, of their, their mm. AWACS planes, advanced early warning and control planes. There's only nine of them in the Russian Air Force. It was being used to, uh, to uh, coordinate attacks. On, on Ukraine, they blew it up with a cheap, a couple of cheap drones operated by Belarusians, the Ukrainians say, mm -hmm. inside Belarus. So I'd be that, that kind <laughs> yeah. of warfare, that kind of cr creativity. I think you're going to see more of that. So I, I, I would think what we're going to see is Ukraine continuing to take back the land like they did in September and October of last year. You're going to see that again this year. And then and only then will Putin get serious about negotiating a, a, a settlement to this war. Do you think that for Ukraine to win, they need F-16s? And uh, why haven't we already given them to Ukraine? Well, this is part of Biden's 
um, controlled escalation of this war. He's been very careful to avoid what he calls you know, the path to World War III. Obviously, no direct U.S. combat role in here, no direct right. NATO combat role. He does not want to get in that kind of conflict, which could quickly escalate out of control. So he's been measured in the, the kinds of weapons he's been giving. I, I would say too measured, too cautious. Mm-hmm. He could speed this up. But you can see that, that the kinds of weapons that it, he ruled out in the first few months of the war, he's now giving. And I think we, we, we now, for example, we see the tanks and the armored personnel carriers coming. We see longer range rockets. I think we are going to see the ATACMs be sent to Ukraine. These are the weapons that can go in the existing launchers we gave them, the HIMAR launchers. But instead of going 40 miles, they can go 140 miles mm. and reach deeper into the, the, the supply lines, the logistic and command headquarters of Russia. The F-16s, I mean, Biden has a very good case here. These are complicated systems, takes a long time to train. But I think eventually we are going to be giving those kinds of fighter planes to Ukraine particularly if Ukraine shows success in holding off the Russian onslaught and starting its counteroffensive in the spring. Now, from what we know of Vladimir Putin, right, it's hard to believe that he would ever admit that he lost this war, right? I mean, so short of that or his being overthrown by his own generals or, uh, you know, inside of Russia— how does this thing end? Mm. Well, there I follow the guidance of Mike McFall, former ambassador to Moscow, and he uh-huh. said that, that you know uh, Putin's got a grip on power unlike anything we've seen since Stalin. You know, and right. even, uh, there is no Politburo anymore. There is no collective leadership of any kind. He controls this, so it's very like unlikely that he would be overthrown. And then, in fact, he can, you know, he'll continue if he loses this war. He will still continue to control Russia. And in so doing, he can then spin uh, a lie to cover his loss the way, say, Donald mm. Trump spins a lie. <laughs> yeah, right. Same thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't lose. You know, this was a great victory. I accomplished my objectives. I'm moving on to something else. So I think there is that kind of out for Putin. In mm. other words, a, a contrary to the claims of some, this is not an existential fight for Putin. Losing this war does not threaten his existence or Russia's existence or even his grip on power. So he can lie his way uh, out of a defeat. And I think that defeat happens as the Russian forces are beaten back and are forced to retreat back, not just to the the lines of 2014 after their first invasion of Ukraine, but back to the Russian border. The question of Crimea is probably the most difficult one. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Where does Crimea end up here? And it's most difficult because it's many people see that it's very hard to imagine Ukraine militarily retaking Crimea. But I think that kind of underestimates the Ukrainian strategy, which is not to engage in frontal, costly assaults, but instead to surround and cut off a, a city until it's impossible to defend the way they did with Hershan, for example. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. assault Hershan. They, they cut off the supply and logistical lines, and the Russians could no longer defend it, and they retreated. You could see that with Crimea. But even if it ends with that, with Crimea being still held by the Russians, but now subject to, say, negotiations on its final status, and they're out of Donbass region, that would be an enormous victory for Ukraine. And that could be the kind of settlement that that even the Ukrainians would be willing to accept uh, 
so it wouldn't have to be a complete Ukrainian victory, but it would have to be, you know, at least the Donbass territories we claimed. So uh, we saw rumors last week of um, a ceasefire or peace talks. Um, what's the reality there? Is there any effort, serious effort underway? And by the way, I guess the related question is, what are the terms of a ceasefire? I mean, what what are they, what are they asking uh, Ukraine to give up? Well, I, I think you know, most military analysts would see a ceasefire right now as aiding Putin. That yeah. That's what yeah. he would like. To, you yeah, know, sure. it, it leaves his forces in place. It buys him the time he needs to, for example, mobilize more soldiers to serve as con cannon fodder in his assaults, to uh, to try other ways to break the will of the West, to let the West lose interest in this conflict. So he would like a ceasefire, not quite now, because he still believes he can win, that he still believes that the next few weeks or months of his assaults can can win. So he's not ready to do a ceasefire yet. And so you got to be careful of, of those claims by some that they want to end Ukrainian suffering by by ending by calling a ceasefire and ending the conflict. That plays into Putin's hands. And that's why Zelensky doesn't want to talk about a ceasefire. He believes that his forces are on the verge of achieving some major successes. And I would agree with him. Uh, is China playing a role in this? You know, you got to give credit to the Biden administration for how they have handled this very delicately without too much insulting rhetoric to China. <laughs> Again, deploying intelligence creatively like they did a year ago when they warned the world and Ukraine that they were about to be invaded, even though many people didn't believe it. They again revealed intelligence over the last week or so that, that they thought that in China was inching up to providing arms mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. uh for Russia, that seems to have stayed the China hand so far. There's no evidence that any arms have been shipped to, to Russia. Instead, they proposed a 12-point peace plan, not really a plan, more like a set of principles out there. I think China potentially could play a constructive role here because they don't want this war to continue. They don't want their biggest ally, Russia, to be continue to be weakened by this and for this to, this war to continue to strengthen Western military unity. That's the last thing they want. So this war is a net negative for China, mm -hmm. which is why in their own national security interest, they may eventually help uh, broker a genuine ceasefire and the restoration, and this is one of their principles, the restoration of each country's national uh, integrity and security, you could see them moving into a position where they would get, provide a face-saving way for Putin to uh, withdraw his forces from most, perhaps all of Ukraine. Uh, and Joe, what is the story? I believe the name of them are the Wagner troops? or Wagner, yeah. Yeah, forces which are like independent, right, uh, from the Russian military. Yeah. I mean, think and, of uh, Blackwater on steroids, the Blackwater contractor group that was in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. That's the Wagner group. It's led a, by? The paramilitary. Yeah, right. Uh, who just have the freedom to go in there and independent of the Russian forces, do whatever they want to do? It yes. seems. Yes. And, 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 and this is... Um, it's Pretty a scary. paramilitary organization. They pride themselves on being better than the Russian military. They've been claiming credit for some recent territorial uh, gains of um, uh, of Russia. But 
the latest reports are that they are, in fact, are not faring any better than the, than the uh, other units of the Russian army. They've been leading the assault on Bakhmut, this small town of not really any strategic consequences. This is another example of the taking the hill in Vietnam. They've, mm. they, they've, they've been decimated in their assaults, even though they've been aided by um, the recruitment of about 30,000 prisoners from Russian prisons who were promised pay and benefits and a pardon if they would fight for six months, those prisoners have now stopped volunteering because they see that the mortality rate among the prisoners who have volunteered for combat is about 70%. And mm. they're just being used as cannon fodder. So the, the Wagner right. group is, 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 is losing some of the prestige that its its leader had hoped to um, to to gain by claiming to be a much better general than the actual general. Now, there's another overriding factor at work here in this war in Ukraine. Uh, it's one that the president, President Biden, again spoke to uh, last week, I believe. He after he got uh, to Poland there in Warsaw, and was talking about um, the issue which President Zelensky has talked about of war crimes. Here's President Biden. You know, this has been an extraordinary year in every sense. Extraordinary brutality from Russian forces and mercenaries. They've committed depravities, crimes against humanity, without shame or compunction. They've targeted civilians with death and destruction, used rape as a weapon of war, stolen Ukrainian children in an attempt to steal Ukraine's future. Bomb train stations, maternity hospitals, schools, and orphanages. No one, no one can turn away their eyes from the atrocities Russia is committing against the Ukrainian people. It's abhorrent. It's abhorrent. So, Joe, there's no doubt war crimes have, be, have yes. been committed. What, you know, what are the consequences, possible consequences for yeah. that? Well, you know, it's very rare for a country that's committing genocide to announce it's committing genocide. But that is essentially what Putin announced a year ago when he gave the justification for his war with Ukraine. He wanted to eliminate Ukraine as a nation, which he said didn't really exist as a nation. And so, and that was his goal, that mm. this was one, one, one people. Ukrainians were the same as Russians. It was an accident of history that this was an independent nation, completely false, by the way. And so we were going to correct that, that historical um, mis mistake. And he's gone about methodically in, in committing a, uh, the, the crimes of, that characterized a genocidal campaign. So it's not just the, uh, the idea, it's not just killing people, it's destroying cultural institutions, it's smashing museums, it's stealing art, it's, a, it's instituting rape as a, a policy of war, it's torture, it's, and, and as, you, as President Biden mentioned, it's stealing children. Mm. You know, it's it's tens of thousands, by some estimates, hundreds of thousands of children have been uh, taken from Ukraine and brought into Russia and put up for adoption or been brought into these camps, these re-education camps where they're being taught to be Russian. You know, that and that is officially a, a, a genocidal crime, is obliterating a person or person's national identity. And that's what they're doing with these these Ukrainian children. And by declaring that Russia was guilty of wars of crimes against humanity, he's subjecting individuals in the Russian leadership to possible trial 
um, um, or, or, or sanctions by the United States, by the United Nations. We, you know, we don't recognize the International Criminal Court, unfortunately, because we're afraid that U.S. officials would be brought <laughs> right. up on these channels, on these charges. Mm-hmm. But, this, but other countries could now bring up Russian officials for for crimes against against humanity for for genocide. So we're this is something that could play out for decades after the war itself actually ends. And Ukraine right today is keeping track of these right and the record of these. So oh, Lensky talks about it all the time. Yeah, there are thousands of lawyers and legal workers, and some of my friends are involved in this. Volunteers from other countries going and documenting each charge, each murder, each rape, each torture. Who did this? Where did you do it? You've seen some excellent reporting from the New York Times, who has photographic evidence. Mm-hmm. Yep, Russians and have identified the Russians involved. So yes, this is a quite a serious effort, and there have been some trials held of, of Russian soldiers captured in the war uh, inside Ukraine. Who, and they've been convicted of um, of war crimes. So President Biden, as we've talked, Joe, has uh, certainly succeeded in unifying Western Europe uh, behind uh, uh, joining the United States in support for Ukraine. Uh, maybe he hasn't totally unified the political front here at home, or maybe Republicans can't make up their mind what they want to do about Ukraine. Uh, let's get into that after a short break here on the uh, on the Bill Press Pod, and then we'll be right back. And today's podcast with Joe Cirincioni, very fittingly, uh, we bring you back to ask your support and your attention to the great work of Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen. They've served over one million hot meals so far in Turkey and Syria post the earthquake, and they are still, one year later, serving hundreds of thousands of meals every day in Ukraine and in Poland to refugees from Ukraine. What a great organization doing the Lord's work around the world. Uh, They deserve all the support we can give them. So please join me in going to their website for the World Central Kitchen, wck.org, simply wck.org, and send them all the help you can. Thank you. And we're back on today's Bill Press Pod uh, with our guest, Joe Cirincioni, national security analyst, a good friend of the uh, Bill Press Pod, and he's been our He's been our go-to guy on the war in Ukraine for a year now since it started, and also former head of the uh, Plowshares Fund. Uh, so, Joe, y- y- we hear different words from the Republican Party on Ukraine. Mitch McConnell said it's the most important thing going on right now. We have to stand totally behind Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy says, uh-uh, no blank check for Ukraine. Uh, and some Republicans, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are even uh, voicing support for Putin. What's going on? Yeah, um, in the the MAGA movement, y- you see a real pro-Putin wing. Jesus, it's very it's very similar. And you know, Liz Cheney, for example, has called them out on this, on on, on the pro-Putin wing. And, you know, it's part of the the historic right-wing fascination with autocratic leaders, with strong, masculine leaders. You know, we saw some of this in the 1930s when you had American politicians admiring and backing and promoting Hitler in the 1930s. And, and, you, and you see some of that now. And this is particularly true of some of the MAGA Republicans who see in Putin 
an effort against wokeism. And Putin fans this. Putin makes yeah. comments like this all the time about yeah. the erasing of genders in the West, for example, another MAGA talking mm-hmm. point. And they identify with this. So it's 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 not you know just uh, a desire to bring America home, and you see that among the left sometimes. We've been too involved in, in foreign adventures. We've been too militarized in our national security policies. Bring us home. This is is actually pro-Putin. They would rather see a strong Putin or a Viktor Orban or a Bolsonaro. I mean, these are their, the people they identify with because they would like a government like that here, one without judicial restraints, without a free press, with you know a, a one-party rule, mm. and so the, 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 it's really frightening to see American politicians actually uh, n- not just promoting policies that would cut U.S. aid for Ukraine, which Matt Gates, for example, has introduced a bill like that with eleven co-sponsors in the House, but to but to see them praising Putin and, and, and favorably comparing the Russian army, the strong Russian army, against uh, comparing it to the, what they consider the, the weakness of the woke American army. Is it also, is part of it also that uh, this um, is just a way of undercutting Joe Biden that, uh, you know, uh, if Biden, if it makes Biden, if this makes Biden look good, then they're against it. Oh, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. But I think there's a deeper ideological uh-huh. reason here. It's not just political opportunism, but it's also political opportunism. Right. Now, uh, in a related issue, when uh, f- when he marked the first anniversary uh, of the war, Putin says, oh, and by the way, yeah, we're going to continue to fight there. We're winning. We might even use nuclear weapons. And by the way, uh, we're going to get out of the New START treaty, the last remaining arms control treaty, I believe, Joe, uh, yes. with the United between the United States and the former Soviet Union and Russia, um, what impact does this have on, you know, nuclear proliferation, nuclear weapons in general? Well, there's this is a twin threat, and and one of them, the first threat is that it continues to weaken the nuclear guardrails. It weakens the fabric of nuclear restraint that has been constructed over fifty years by. Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, to try to rein in the arm race. And it's effectively reduced the stockpiles, made us somewhat safer, although as long as nuclear weapons exist, you're never really safe. Uh, and when Trump was president, Putin and Trump cooperated to tear down two other pillars, the International uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, the op- which allowed, which banned these weapons of certain ranges in Europe, the Open Skies Treaty, which allowed for airplane overflights over the military um, bases of, of each side. They tore those down. And the last one left, as you say, the last treaty standing is the New START Treaty. He, he, what he, Putin said was he was going to suspend mm. his cooperation with certain aspects of the treaty, the inspections, the meetings, the data exchanges. There's no real allowance for suspension, either you're in or you're out. So the yeah. U.S. says this is a major violation of the treaty in the right. But there's been no indication that it's resulted in any actual change in their nuclear posture. He hasn't said he was going to exceed the limits. He's he's not, he doesn't have uh, major new programs that could actually suddenly increase the Russian stockpile. He's got plenty of weapons that could destroy human civilization many times over, so the numbers don't really matter, even at the levels we're at. 
I think the, the bigger impact of this is not so much what it does physically for the nuclear security structure. It's what it does psychologically to the West. He's once again rattling the nuclear saber. He's reaching for some threat that he can raise again to some mm -hmm. effect to Western publics, to the global South, to say, if the West continues to aid Ukraine, this is going to lead to nuclear war. You better quit now. And that's yeah. what his New Start bluster was all about. When does New Start expire? 2026. And there's no, there's no effort, there's no provision for extending it. So you either have to negotiate a brand new treaty or it just dies. And if it does expire, that, does that mean we're just back in the old Cold War nuclear arms race? Yes, and we've been heading in that direction anyway, and, and this is the last remaining treaty that limits uh, nuclear arms. Remember, this started with Richard Nixon back in 1972 with the, the, the SALT Treaty that limited weapons. Then Reagan came in with the START treaties that actually reduced weapons, and it worked. We went, we went from a world with 60,000 nuclear weapons, mostly held by the United States and Russia, down to where we have just about a little under 13,000 now, again, mostly held by the U.S. and Russia. But that process has stopped. There's been no negotiations for, let's see, 13 years now. And if this treaty expires, that will have to go back to square one and start all over again. Just to be clear, 13,000 is still enough to destroy the planet, right? Oh, many times. Well, the right. planet will be fine. Human oh. beings, not so much. <laughs> Got it. So when you add all of this up, uh, you know, Ukraine and everything else going on, does this mean that as we move into the next presidential campaign, uh, that foreign policy may once again it hasn't been for a while, may once again be a major issue, defining issue in the next presidential election, do you think? As you know, foreign policy rarely plays yeah, the right. dominant role, right? It's it's always other things, um, whether it's taxes or race relations or, you know, abortion or whatever. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But in this case, uh, I think foreign policy could be front and center. If it's Trump or DeSantis that Biden is facing, they are both pro-Putin, you know. They are both mm -hmm. for disengagement, and and Biden is perhaps the most effective American leader that we've seen in, in many many years, leading a resurgence of American leadership in the global national security architecture. So you couldn't ask for a sharper contrast on foreign policy. Um, uh, I, I got to think that it in, we, we might see uh, the exception to the usual presidential race and that foreign policy will make a big difference in voters' decisions when they go into that, that booth. And of course, that, that assumes or presumes that Americans will care about it, right? Which I, I Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll care about it. Like, do you want to see the U.S. continue to support Ukraine? I think hopefully we're looking at the question of rebuilding Ukraine. You know, at that point, that the Ukrainians will have won the war by 2024, but uh, but there, there was there will undoubtedly still be crises brewing with mm -hmm. Russia, with China, with Iran in the Middle East. So um, uh, uh, it, there are so many hotspots around the world, Joe. We could talk about for hours, but I do want to ask you about one more before we let you go, and that is we see these massive protests. Uh, in Israel now against what is called the Supreme Court override bill that uh, 
the right-wing government BB Netanyahu has put together uh, is pushing. It's now passed, I think, one test. Maybe it has a couple more to go. Um, but um, this, I mean, this is a serious threat, not beyond the borders of Israel. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. How, how do you read it? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Israel is is perhaps in the most internal turmoil that I've ever seen. This is its own, you know, Zeitenwunder, its own turning point. There have been tens of thousands of people in the streets of Tel Aviv for weeks now protesting this bill because it, it would turn Israel away from democracy. You know, what they, what they want is to allow the 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 Knesset, the legislature, to make its own rules that cannot be overturned by an independent judiciary, to, uh, to, to allow the political leaders of the Knesset to appoint the judges directly mm-hmm. and, and to eliminate the independent judiciary. That is the, one of the hallmarks of democracy, and, the, and people are very afraid of what that means. For example, they could declare, they could uh, ban newspapers, for example. They could ban, they could prohibit op- opposition politicians from talking, anything they wanted to do, and there'd be no judicial appeal that was allowed because under this reform, the the Knesset could just by simple majority vote overturn any judicial uh, finding. And this comes at a time where there is increasing conflict with the Palestinians. Just yesterday, there was a a gang of settlers um, laid siege to an Arab village outside Nablus and for hours were burning homes and and uh, and and sh- killed one Palestinian there in retaliation for a Palestinian attack that had killed two uh, young is brothers to Israeli settlers on the road outside Nablus two days ago, which was itself a response to the Israeli raid on Nablus that killed eleven Palestinians earlier. Uh, last week. And you see these tensions, you know, piling up. There's, again, demonstrations at Tel Aviv about what the Israeli military is doing in the West Bank. There was a U.S. effort to try to cool things off. They convened a a meeting in Aqaba, Mm -hmm. Jordan, uh, where there was going to be some Israeli officials said, "Okay, we're going to freeze the settlements for a while. Let's try to cool things off. The, The the um, a far-right finance minister and the national security administrator, uh, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, said, oh, no, we're not. Oh. You know, there is, there's a question of whether Bibi Netanyahu is actually in control of his own government at this point. I encourage your listeners to go look up Haaretz. Go look at the, the newspaper, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, to get a sense of the turmoil that Israel's in right now, it's spiraling up towards a, a, a greater and greater conflict, and there's no responsible leader in the government that's actually trying to cool things down. So the American um, sort of uh, argument, right, that we stand strongly behind Israel because it's the only democracy in the Middle East, uh, it, it's in question now, or could be in question. Yes. Yes, it could be. And by, by Israelis themselves, Israelis yeah. themselves are saying this, you, we're going to, we will not be a democracy anymore. You, this is one last thing. You're seeing some of the reserve officers in the Air Force say that they're not going to report for duty because if this bill passes, they can no, Israel can no longer say that, say that there's an appropriate judicial mechanism for um, deciding uh, uh, it, it, 
military maneuvers that might be considered war crimes, and that would subject them to international war crimes prosecution. And that's why they don't want to participate in and fulfill their reserve obligations as officers in the Air Force. So this gets very serious very quickly. Right. So uh, let me bring it back home one more time. And the link is, uh, I just read this morning uh, in reviewing President Carter's record. And of course, oh, there's been yeah. a lot of reappraisal and another second look at Jimmy Carter since it was announced last week that he's really in his last days and he's chosen to forgo any more medical treatment and enter yeah. hospice treatment. But that Jimmy Carter was the first president to uh, warn Israel that and urge them to stop building these settlements in the, in the West Bank because it basically would be an obstruction to uh, any lasting settlement between um, the Palestinian Authority and and uh, and Israel. Um, overall, either foreign policy or domestic policy, um, it's worth taking a second look at Jimmy Carter. Joe, would you agree? And that history makes him look better than we thought at the time. Yes, I do agree. I think you're onto something, Bill. You know, the standard rap on Jimmy Carter was that he was a mediocre president that became America's favorite ex-president right. because of the clear humanity and goodness that he's demonstrated in the years. But when you look at his foreign policy re record, instead of thinking about the Iran hostage situation, you know, for example, think you, you start going down his achievements in four years, they're very impressive, starting with Camp David, which is still... Mm the only lasting peace agreement that any U.S. president has been able to broker in, in the Middle East. He normalized uh, relations with China, a process begun by Richard Nixon, but he finalized it and, and formalized it. He, gave, he, he got rid of the embarrassing colonial legacy of U.S. possession of the Panama Canal, despite ferocious right-wing opposition. Do you miss the Panama Canal? You know, but he did that, which was extremely important for our relations in, in Latin America. He was one of the first presidents to push to elevate democracy and, and human rights as a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy. And he continued that later on with his involvement with the NDI, the National Democratic Institute. He promoted energy independence and, and green technologies way before most other people were yeah. thinking about this. Remember the solar panels on the solar on panels the on, the, on the White House roof? Yeah. Right. And, and more and more. So I, I think, you know, we are going to revisit this and we'll see some of those overlooked achievements in a new light and reevaluate his his four years as, as president. And the first president to warn about the dangers of climate change. Right? Yeah. So in many ways, he was ahead of his time. You know. Yes, I, I think he was. He was the first president to visit sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and and helped the transition of power from the white minority government in Rhodesia to the uh, bl black majority government of, of Zimbabwe. You know, things like that, where he personally put his reputation on the line and served as a, a, a broker and a peacemaker. Uh, Joe Sirincioni, thank you for being such a good friend. Thank you for your time today. I hope we don't have to talk to you a year from now, because I hope this war in Ukraine <laughs> somehow will be behind us. But we can still talk about other things and other foreign policy issues and domestic issues as well. Um, you're the best. Joe Sirincioni, thank you, my friend. How can people follow you? Uh, when well, you're not on the I, Bill Press pod. As long as there's a Twitter, I still have a Twitter account, at <laughs> Um 
uh, and that's probably the best way to stay in, in touch with me. And uh, yeah, that's thank you very much, Bill, for ta have taken the time to talk about these issues <laughs> and to have me on again. You'll have your Twitter account until Elon Musk <laughs> pulls <laughs> the plug. Discovers <laughs> you. Exactly. All right. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Cirincione, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back again Friday with our Reporters Roundtable, bringing you up to date and getting their perspective on all the news of the week from our nation's capital. Have a great week. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for the Roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.